Take your Bibles out and turn again to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, the message is entitled Stormy Weather. Stormy Weather. Hopefully you received a bulletin on your way in the door and you can grab one of those outlines and follow along as we go through the message this morning. Most of you know I was born and raised in the state of Florida, but I love living in Tennessee. I love the mountains and the hills and the rivers and the trees. I love the soil. It's not sand like Florida. And I love the thing about Tennessee. One of the things I love is the seasons, that we have distinct seasons that change. And many people have a false understanding about Florida that we don't have seasons in Florida. We do have seasons in Florida. They're just a little different than the seasons in Tennessee. For instance, the first season is snowbird season. And what snowbird season is, is it's that season between October and March when all of the northerners who are retired make a trek down south because it's easier to shovel sunshine than it is to shovel snow. And so they spend a large part of their year in Florida. And when Amy and I served at First Baptist Fort Meade, Florida, that was a large snowbird location. And our church literally doubled in size during snowbird season. And just as our church became congested, also the roads became congested. But it's okay because northerners are great drivers. <laughs> Second season was, sorry, love bug season. Love bug season. If you've never lived in Florida, you may not know about this season. It's a very real season in March and April. These little bugs that are called love bugs because the males and females mate in mid-flight. They're flying in the air and they mate uh, about two to three feet off the ground, and they're particularly attracted to hot surfaces. So black asphalt is where they like to mate, millions of them, and your car ends up looking like this during love bug season. No joke, I've cleaned many love bugs off of the front of cars. The third season we experience in Florida is alligator mating season and alligator nesting season. This is in May and July, and basically the males create this kind of territory in a pond or a lagoon where females are attracted to them and they defend that territory from all comers until a female comes there. And then after the female uh, has eggs, she will build a nest and she defends that nest of about 40 eggs to the death. Your death, not her death. And so that's the next season. The final season we get to enjoy in Florida is hurricane season. Hurricane season, it's really... Uh, the longest of all. It's uh, July through October. Florida being a peninsula, it's literally stuck out in the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean like a sore thumb. Some have said recently, I saw this, that Florida's kind of like America's mullet. I don't know if that's true <laughs> or not, but Florida is stuck out like a sore thumb there. Now, Floridians during hurricane season are on high alert and we are always following the hurricane trackers to see when storms might be coming our way so as floridians we pay attention to storms that are forming on the coast of africa and then they head through and they begin to strengthen through the caribbean until finally these meteorologists will give some type of indication of where they think landfall is going to happen we make extensive Preparations. I can remember growing up on the farm when we saw that a hurricane might be heading our way. We did all kinds of things, literally batten down the hatches in case a hurricane was coming and threatening our specific location. But think about it. The fact that there are weather satellites and weather radar, things that we can 
kind of indicate when a storm is coming, that is really a modern phenomenon. The first weather satellite was launched in 1960. The first weather radar was televised in 1961. Before then, you could see a storm coming, and you might think a storm is going to come, but there was really no way to tell how powerful it was, which direction it was going, and now meteorologists can, with some degree of success, predict where they're going to go, and so they will evacuate coastal communities because of the threat of a storm. But before modern inventions, storms would just arrive suddenly with no warning. You're trekking along, happy-go-lucky, and then boom, a storm hits. And this is really the way it is in our life with storms that we encounter, right? You could be trekking along, happy-go-lucky, and then all of a sudden you're in the middle of a storm that you never saw coming. The disciples in our text today experienced a sudden stormy weather as well. Now, what we're going to focus on particularly is not so much the storm, though it's real, it's treacherous. What we're going to focus on is what is Jesus doing during their storm? And I think we can draw some implications for our lives. If we are Christians, what is Jesus doing during our storm? Well, let's look at the focal passage. This is God's inspired, inerrant word. Hear it. Verse 16 of John 6. When evening came... His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the fifth of the seven signs, the seven miracles that John records in his gospel account. Uh, if you'll remember, as we've been trekking through this, the first one was Jesus turning the water to wine at the wedding in Cana. And the second one was when Jesus healed the paralytic beside the pool of Siloam. And then he also healed the royal official's son at a distance. Last week we saw the feeding of the 5,000, another miracle. This week, walking on the water, there are two remaining miracles. In chapter 9, we'll see where Jesus heals the man who's been blind from birth. And then finally, perhaps the most astounding miracle, Jesus in John 11 raises four-day dead Lazarus from the grave. Now, the miracle of Jesus walking on the water that we're studying today, it's in three of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and here in John. And we'll actually consider the parallel accounts in our study today to really get the full implications of what this miracle means for our own lives. Now, by way of reminder, the seven sign miracles of Jesus that John records, and he says there's not enough books in the world to contain all that Jesus said or did, but the seven he recorded, why did he record them? They are to communicate to us the divine nature of Jesus. Jesus is God, and friends, Jesus is Lord, Lord even over the seas. With all of our modern advancements in technology, one thing we cannot do, one thing that humans are incapable of doing, is changing the weather. We can see the weather, we can somewhat understand the weather, we can prepare for the weather, but we are powerless to stop storms. Hurricanes, I can tell you, making landfall and threatening your community 
are frightening. Tornadoes coming through a community like came through our community about 10 years ago and bringing swaths of destruction, they're terrifying. But nothing is as terrifying as getting a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. That is a frightening reality to see not just the storm, but the one who has the power over the storms. And did you know that Jesus's mighty power is still at work today? His mighty power is still functioning. And this morning, I want us to see three things that Jesus is doing in the midst of the storm. And I believe as we consider them, they will move us to awe and to wonder and to worship. The first one is this. Number one, he is praying us through our problems. In the midst of the storm, Jesus is praying us through our problems. Think back to what we studied last week, the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men, and I told you it represented a guerrilla force, an insurrection, a revolutionary force that wanted to take Jesus and make him king by force. I believe the last verse of the section we studied last week, verse 15, perceiving then that they, this crowd of 5,000, look at verse 15, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What, what did Jesus do at the end of our passage last week? He withdrew away from the force that wanted to make him king by himself to the mountain. Now, what do we find Jesus doing when he withdraws away from crowds, when he withdraws away from his disciples, when he goes and he is alone? What do we always find Jesus doing? He's praying. The Son of God, who has had eternal fellowship with the Father, prays. He lifts up prayers to God. In fact, Mark's account of this miracle says specifically this is what Jesus was doing when he withdrew from the crowd. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 45 and 46. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat, so he commanded them to go and go before him to the other side. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Jesus goes away by himself to pray as he makes his disciples travel across to the other side of the sea. And I have no doubt in my mind, just like we saw last week with the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus knew exactly what he was intending to do. And you remember that last week? He turns to Philip after this crowd of some 20,000 people is hungry, and he says, Philip, where are we to find bread to feed all these people? And then the little commentary that John gives is this. He said this to test him, for he knew what he intended to do. Jesus sends the disciples into the sea, calm waters, but a storm is coming. He goes to the mountain, but he himself knew what he was intending to do. He knew exactly, and I have a sense that's what's happening in this situation. You can trace this recurrence throughout the gospel accounts that any time the disciples are separated from Jesus, when he goes away from them, something bad's going to happen. That's just the way it happens. They can't deliver a demon from this little girl. They, they get caught in all kinds of uh, things that are difficult for them to handle, and here's the same thing. Jesus is separated from them, and they experience something they really can't handle. In fact, I think John, the inspired author, this is the last gospel written, written actually decades after um, Matthew and Luke, which are the previous ones recorded. I think he gives us a little bit of a literary setup 
as what's to, about to happen. Look again at the opening verses of our passage, verse 16 and 17. John writing under the inspiration of the Spirit says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started <laughs> across the sea to Capernaum. Here's the literary setup. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. If you're a Peanuts fan, I mean Charles Schultz, comic strip Peanuts, Snoopy was sometimes a novelist, and he always started his novels the same way. It was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> Snoopy would like this passage. It was a dark and stormy night. And many people, some of you here, you're reluctant to drive in the dark, aren't you? Some of you, the older you get, the less you enjoy or you appreciate or you will attempt to drive in the dark. And I, just the other day, we were driving on the interstate from Florida, and we encountered this, this torrential downpour coming down on us. And what do people on the interstate do whenever it starts storming? They park under the overpass, right? They get off on the next exit, wait for the storm to, to, to go away. What's the worst is driving at night in a torrential downpour, right? That's horrible. You can't see in front of you. It's, your vision is blocked. Well, imagine not being on a solid surface, but being on the sea. It's dark. It's storming. It's raining. You can't see the hand in front of your face except for the occasional flash of lightning. That's the situation these 12 disciples are in. Now, just like these disciples, we encounter storms, don't we? Unsuspected storms, things that, that we don't know are going to happen. I've said before, but it bears repeating. If you're not in a storm right now, you're likely just coming out of one or watch out, you're about to go into one. Storms are a reality of this life. In fact, that leads to a question I want to ask and hopefully answer. Why do we encounter storms? As Christians, why do we encounter storms? Why do we face trials and difficulties? Well, there are really three reasons I see why these disciples encountered storms, and they're the same reasons why we encounter storms. First of all, we encounter storms because of the condition of our world, the condition of the world in which we live in. John tells us that there was a strong wind that was blowing. Now, the Sea of Galilee was a dangerous body of water for those who were fishermen or those who were sailors who traversed across this sea. I've got a picture of the Sea of Galilee, and you'll notice the Sea of Galilee is nestled about 600 feet below sea level. But you see in the distance there, those white peaks, that's Mount Hermon, and it peaks at 9,200 feet of elevation, so almost 10,000 feet difference between the peak of Mount Hermon and the Sea of Galilee. What happens is, is the winds change and the cold air on Mount Hermon descends down into the valley below sea level and the warm air of the Sea of Galilee, it can bring up these sudden storms that are vicious and devastating, and that seems to be what's happening here. This happens because it's the condition of the geography of the world in which they're in. Storms happen because of the world we live in, and it's the same for, for us. We experience storms, we encounter trials because of the world in which we live in. This is a fallen world. Do you believe that? Just look at the news. You can discover this is a fallen world. Bad things happen. We're sinners, and there's not a molecule of the planet that's not been impacted by sin. And so we experience storms, the condition of the world. Also, we experience storms because it's part of the calling of Christians. It's part of the calling of Christians. These disciples endured this storm because they were following the call of Jesus. If you're a Christian this morning, mark it down. 
you will encounter storms as a direct result of the calling of Christ. When you said yes to follow Jesus, you signed up for storms. Our calling as Christians sometimes exposes us to the storms of mockery from the world, persecution, and on the spiritual level, warfare with the evil one and his forces of evil. And I think it's important to point out, too, that this storm occurred immediately after a time of refreshing. This storm occurred immediately after they had a time of encouragement from Jesus himself. The feeding of the 5,000. After this miracle, when the very nature of Christ was confirmed to them individually, 12 baskets of leftovers, 12 disciples, they brought them to Jesus. They knew he's God. And immediately after that confirmation, this sweet time of communion, that's when they encountered the storm. And friend, that's often the time with us as well. We encounter storms, and those times of refreshment actually prepare us for the storm that is coming. We encounter storms because it's the condition of the world, because it's our calling as Christians, but thirdly, it's part of the command of Christ. We encounter storms because of the command of Christ. They were subjected to this storm because they obeyed Jesus. Bottom line, Jesus told them to go. That was the command. They obeyed. They encountered the storm. You've probably heard the saying before, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Well, that may be true on a spiritual level, but it's often not the case on a relational level with other people, on a physical level. Oftentimes, the center of God's will is where you will encounter the harshest storms and the deepest trials. One of my favorite Bible commentators that I read weekly is Kent Hughes. And notice how Kent Hughes put it in his commentary. He said this, Moses would never have felt rejected by a complaining people if at the burning bush he had decided not to obey Jehovah. Daniel would never have had to face a lion's den if he had not decided to be faithful to God. Just think of how much persecution Paul would have, had, would have avoided if he had just stayed in Tarsus. But then these great men would have never known the refreshing winds of the Holy Spirit flowing through their lives. Trials and tribulations, difficulties and storms are to be expected. The Apostle Peter, who was in this boat, the Apostle Peter, who in Matthew's uh, telling of this event, says that Peter actually got out of the boat and walked on the water to Jesus and back to the boat. Peter tells us this about storms in his first epistle, chapter 1. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? What's the purpose? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals himself to us in our trials and at the revelation of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of those difficulties, it can result from us praise and glory and honor. If you're in the middle of a storm right now, Settle this fact in your heart and in your mind. The Son of God sees you. 
He sees you. Looking at another parallel account, this is exactly what Mark says in Mark chapter 6, verse 47. Watch this. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he, that's Jesus, was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Friends, don't ever think that Jesus doesn't see your struggles. Don't ever think that he's not watching you in the middle of the storm. And what was he doing on that mountain? He was not just watching them. He was praying for them. I wonder, what was he praying? How was he praying for them in the middle of the storm? Do you remember how Jesus prayed for Peter just before he entered the storm of temptation to betray the Lord? Look again at how he prayed. Jesus praying, or tells Peter he's praying, Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. How comforting is it that even in the middle of a storm, even a storm of temptation, Jesus is praying, may their faith not fail. Perhaps he prayed something like we will find recorded in John 17, the high priestly prayer in the upper room with his, his disciples gathered. He says uh, he prayed for them multiple things. He prayed, Father, may their joy be full. Just as you sent me into the world, so I'm sending them into the world. Or just as you and I, Father, are one, make them one. Friends, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a trial, it's real easy to get angry with the people who are closest to us. And be one, even as we are one. Jesus is praying for us, interceding for us in the midst of our trials. In fact, the New Testament over and over confirms this fact. Here's a couple passages back to back. Romans 8, 34 says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is, present tense, interceding for us. Hebrews 7 says this, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, you can face stormy weather knowing that Jesus is praying us through our problems. Here's the second thing we see that Jesus is doing in this storm. Number two, he is proclaiming to us his peace. He's proclaiming to us his peace. Now, on this boat, we know there were at least four professional fishermen. John and Andrew, excuse me, John and James, brothers, and the other set of brothers, Peter and Andrew. There could have been more fishermen. We don't know the occupations of all 12 disciples. They had encountered, no doubt, many storms on this very body of water. And look at verse 19. Uh, John recalls what happened next. When they had rowed about three or four miles they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. What were they afraid of? Were they afraid of the storm? Well, perhaps there was some fear there, but that's not what the text said. Again, these are experienced sailors. They've been in storms before. They know if they keep rowing, eventually they may get through it. Their hearts were not fearful from the raging storm. Their hearts were frightened when they saw Jesus walking on the water. They got a glimpse of his glory. They were able to see his majesty and his power, and this struck fear in their hearts. Why? Because people can't walk on water. 
That's impossible. You might be able to barefoot ski on the Tennessee River, but you can't step off a pier and walk on the water. People can't do that. Now, there is a species that can. Did you know that? In South America, there's a species called the Jesus lizard. It's true. You might see it on Animal Planet sometimes. And the Jesus lizard has its hind feet are webbed. And whenever it's uh, chasing an insect or it's being chased by a predator, it's been observed in the wild scampering on the top of water. Now, if you ever see this on Animal Planet or some other type program, they will show it in very slow motion because then it looks like he's walking on water. The truth of the matter is they can only do this for about 10 feet. And then they sink to the bottom just like the rest of us. They're very good swimmers too. But 10 feet, that's further than you and I can do, right? But it's still not walking across a stormy sea. Only Jesus can do that. This is unprecedented. And again, it strikes fear in them. Now, in my sanctified imagination, in my sanctified imagination, I can conceive of how it may have gone down. Again, it's pitch black. They can't see anything. They can't see the hand in front of their face except for the occasional lightning strike. And then maybe Peter was the first one to get you, catch a glimpse of something in the distance. Lightning flashes. And he sees. He thinks it's something. He goes, did you guys see that? It looked like somebody was walking on the water. You mean swimming in the water? Dog paddling in the water? No, no, walking in the water. I like to think maybe Thomas said, you're full of it. There ain't no way. And lightning flashes again. And they all see it. Did you see that? Tell me you saw it, Thomas. I saw it. What was that? I don't know. Maybe it was a ghost. Lightning flashes again. And the text says they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat. It is a miracle, to be sure. But friends, listen. It is no less of a miracle than when Jesus walks on your storm and comes to you. You know why? Because let's be honest with ourselves. Most of the storms we encounter are self-induced. Most of the trials we go through are a consequence of our own decisions. And Jesus walks over our sin. He tramples underfoot our enemies, and he walks on the storm to come to us. How did Jesus conquer our sin? How did Jesus conquer our failures and our flaws? Through his death on the cross, by taking in our place the punishment for our sin. How did he provide victory through our trials? Through his resurrection from the dead on the third day to give new life, to give new life. And this point bears repeating over and over again. Because it's the prevailing worldview of the world in which we live. The way to get through storms is just keep rowing. In fact, the religious systems of the world and even variant spinoffs of biblical Christianity, they would have this idea and they would sell this bill of goods that, oh, God's given you a little boat and he's given you a paddle and if you paddle real hard, If you row real hard, you'll eventually make it to the other side. You'll eventually get to the shore. But here's where Christianity, biblical Christianity, differs. No, you're going to sink and you're going to die. The only way to get to the other shore 
is if Jesus takes you there. The psalmist put it like this in Psalm 77. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Let me ask you a question. How do you respond to Jesus' coming in the middle of your storm? Notice how Matthew, another person who was seated in the boat with John and Peter and Thomas, notice how he described their reaction to Jesus in chapter 14, his account. Matthew says, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it it is a ghost. They cried out in fear. To them, it was more rational to believe in ghosts. Something, by the way, just an aside, they're not real. But they believed in it because surely Jesus couldn't be walking on the water. The Greek word there is phantasma, a phantom. They were fearful. They were terrified. They cried out in fear. And I don't want you to miss this. They were more afraid after seeing Jesus than before they saw him. The disciples were more afraid after seeing Jesus than the storm. Because what really struck fear in their hearts was an open display of his power before them. And that leads to a question I want all of us to ask and answer in our hearts. Look at this next slide. When was the last time you got a glimpse of the glory and power of Jesus and trembled in fear? When was the last time you trembled before the Lord? When was the last time you were fearful because of the manifest presence of his spirit. We just saying, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here, really? It could be a fearful thing to be in the gaze of the Holy Spirit. Is it possible to just have an intellectual knowledge about Jesus? Is it possible that for you, Jesus is just a variable in this algebraic equation? That you put Jesus into the equation and everything works out, and that's your savior. He's just going to make everything work out. Jesus is Lord. And there ought to have been a time in your life when you trembled before his manifest presence and power. He's not a God to be trifled with. He is a Lord to be feared. The unveiled majesty of Jesus. Has that happened? Maybe it was a time of private prayer. You sensed his presence and you trembled. Maybe even this morning through the singing of a song, you were aware of him and you trembled. Or most poignantly, in the word, you got a glimpse of his glory in the scripture and you trembled. Friends, Jesus is so much more than a really nice guy who does neat tricks. And what did Jesus do in their state of trembling terror. He spoke his word to them. He spoke his word to them. He identified himself. He spoke peace to them. Look again at verse 20. What did he say? He said, it is I. Do not be afraid. 
It is I. Do not be afraid. He comes to us in the midst of our fears, in the center of the storm, and he says, I'm here. I'm with you. I I find this to be something like what parents do whenever children experience these night terrors or a disturbing dream. Ever had that before with your children? Mommy, a scary dream. I'm talking about the non-manipulative children. Manipulative children use it to get out of bed and come hang with you. But the non-manipulative children, when they have a genuine scary dream, they'll come into your room and they'll cry out. And the moms will say, it's okay, honey. Come here. I'm here. And the dads will say, it's okay, honey. Mom's right there. Jesus says, it's okay, I'm here. In the text, the translation is, it is I. Two words in the Greek, ego, eimi. And that's a simple enough and, and clear translation of ego, eimi. But those two Greek words, ego, eimi, also are the exact two Greek words that translate from Exodus 3.14. When Moses is standing before the burning bush and he asks the voice to identify himself, who should I say sent me? And the Greek translation of I am who I am is ego eimi. Ego eimi. It is I. I am. What Jesus provides here for these terrified disciples is what I think John in this literary structure of his book is a precursor to the seven I am statements that are going to be coming as we study through this book together. You'll study the next one next week. I am the bread of life. These I am statements of Jesus, just like there are seven signs in John, he organizes his work around seven I am statements, declaring his nature that he is God. And what Jesus provides, don't miss this, in the middle of their storm is his word. Friend, if you are in a storm, you should run to his word. You should run to the scripture. When we go through storms today, it is the calming influence of the word, of the Bible, and not just the text on the page, but the Bible, the word reveals to us who God is, reveals to us who Jesus is. It's by turning to our Bibles, that our minds are comforted. We grow more and more familiar with the voice of Jesus. So so what is Jesus doing in the middle of the storm? He's praying for us through our problems. He's proclaiming his peace to us through his word. Here's the third thing. Number three, he is powering us by his presence. He's powering us by his presence. Look again at verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into that boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. There are several miracles in this event. The most obvious one is Jesus walking on top of the water. The others that both Matthew and Mark record for us is that immediately the storm ended at the presence of Jesus. But I think this is the third miracle. Immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, how did he do that? Did Jesus teleport the boat and all the inhabitants to the shore? Maybe. Did Jesus turn the headwind into a tailwind and push him to the shore? Maybe. Whatever that happened, 
the Bible says immediately they were at the land. Here's the point. The presence of Jesus also brings the power of Jesus. The presence of Jesus also brings the power of Jesus. It was his power that calmed the storm, and it was his power that brought them to the other side of the lake. And here's the application for us. God has called each of us to his work, to his ministry, to his service. The only way you will have power to do what Christ has called you to do is to know his presence. We'll just be rowing and rowing and rowing. If this church functions in the power of the flesh, we will accomplish nothing of eternal significance. But if we surrender to Jesus, we invite him into our boat, his presence brings peace, but his presence will also bring power. Friend, our greatest need is not to be preserved from earthly troubles. Let me say that again. Our greatest need is not to be preserved from earthly troubles. Our greatest need is to have the presence of Jesus with us. I'll close with this. Growing up, on a farm with no other homes around us, because who wants to build a house next to a pig farm? We got to experience something that often in the city life we don't get to experience, living in a subdivision or suburbs with lots of houses with street lights and flood lamps going on as anytime somebody passes by our neighbor's house. And that experience is the great contrast of the night sky and the brilliance of the stars in that night sky and the darkness of our environment. And maybe you've experienced this if you've ever gone camping, and you look and you're like, where did those stars come from? Well, they've always been there. You just couldn't see them. It is the darkness, the deep darkness, that reveals the beauty and the brilliance of the stars, similar to how a jeweler will put down a black felt on the counter when they're displaying a diamond necklace. Why? Because that black background brings a contrast that shows off all the beauty and the facets of those diamonds in that necklace. And the same is true in our lives. It's when we're in the dark, it's when we're in the storms, that often we see facets of the nature of Jesus that we've never seen before. No, nobody wants to go through a storm. Nobody invites them into their lives. But look for Jesus in the storm. How did these disciples respond to this facet of revelation of Jesus' power? Again, we look at a parallel account to close. Matthew concludes this miracle of Jesus walking on the water with these words. Chapter 14, verse 33, he says, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. How did they respond? When they saw this aspect of the nature of Jesus against the darkness of that stormy night, they worshipped him. Awe, wonder. And the point of the miracles for us is to cause us to see the nature, the divinity of Jesus, but secondly, to move us to reverential worship. And that's what we're about to do. Let me ask you a question. Is he worthy? He is. We're going to sing that in a moment. That leads to my last thought. The only appropriate response 
to a revelation of the divine nature of Jesus is to worship him.